Welcome everybody to Trinity Community Church. My name is Mike. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity. Just want to welcome you to, to our Christmas Eve service. Very glad that you've decided to make us a part of your celebration this year. Um, just a real quick note, as you're walking in, you should have picked up a candle. We will be lighting them later. Um, adults only. We, uh, we don't want to add arson to our um, Christmas celebration this year, but um, yeah, just make sure to not burn the place down. Um, but yeah, so we'll be lighting candles later on, um, and then feel free to return them to the same uh, receptacles as you're leaving. That would be excellent. All right, thanks guys. We're actually going to move into our Advent reading right now. Today we remember the birth of the baby named Jesus. Listen as I read from the book of Isaiah 9, verse 2, 6, and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. On this Christmas Eve, we light the candle that represents Christ. As we celebrate Christmas, let us rejoice. For the light that shines on our pathway, for the great redemption revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ, for the fellowship of faith in the beloved community of the church. I'm JP. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity, and um, this evening I'm going to be reading our scripture passage for the lesson tonight, um, which is going to be Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. If you'd like to read with me, there should be a red Bible under your chair. Um, we'll be reading from page 857. One of the most influential philosophers of recent years was a man by the name of Immanuel Kant, exactly what I know you wanted to hear about on Christmas Eve. Um, but Kant probably shaped your thinking much more than you actually realize he did, even if you never heard of him. And he taught, among many other things, that God, the metaphysical world, while it may be known that it's true and that it exists, God can never be known truly because he exists in this sphere that you can't observe, you can't touch him, you can't taste God, you can't see God, you can't hear God and feel him. Therefore, while you may, not, may, you may know God exists, you can never know him truly. And one of the things that we as Christians celebrate at Christmas is that God has stepped out of the metaphysical world into our physical world to say, touch me, hear me, see me, know me. And because in the person of Jesus Christ, God has stepped into our world, we can know God truly through Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate um, and we also celebrate that in the word, in God's written word, that he has spoken to us to tell us who he is. And so that's one of the reasons that the reading and teaching of, of the Bible is so important to Christians, 
um, and when we come together. And so as we read tonight's passage, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, would you stand with me um, just in honor of the reading of God's word? This is the birth of Jesus Christ, as told by Luke, one of his followers. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You join me in prayer. Lord, I I pray that you would open up your word to us, that we would come to recognize um, the Messiah who came in an unlikely and unexpected way. In your name, amen. So there was this moment uh, in this past year's Oscars ceremony that, um, to me, was just utterly baffling. So um, Jimmy Kimmel was hosting, and the whole time he kept on uh, showing footage, candid, candid camera footage of this group of tourists that were making their way in and around the building where the ceremony was being held. Um, and unbeknownst to them, they were about to walk through a door uh, right into the, the Oscars ceremony. So you have all these uh, famous, influential celebrities dressed to the nines, tuxes, uh, ball gowns, everything, and then this group of tourists that's, that are about to come in. So they finally are ushered in. Um, we have squealing and crying, and, and most of them are just in a state of shock. Um, and in some ways it was kind of funny, but there was this part of me that couldn't help but, but think that it was also like deeply elitist, right? There was, there was, I kept on expecting somebody to, to be asked to kiss Meryl Streep's ring or something, like she was the Queen of England. It was a very strange moment to me. I think the reason why is because it was a moment that emphasized the difference between those celebrities and those tourists. 
I know we were supposed to take it as this kind of like, oh, they like pranks too, they're relatable. Um, but instead, it, it, it created a, a chasm, an us and them. Um, it showed just how high the, the heights are, right, in some way. Um, it emphasized the difference in the end between the tourists and, and the celebrities. Um, I think in this moment in Luke, we have uh, the exact opposite. We have a long-awaited Messiah, um, so the people of Israel, their entire scriptures, uh, which we know is the Old Testament, are just peppered with anticipation for this Messiah who would be an ultimate king. He, he would eventually subdue all other nations under himself and bring about peace and flourishing for God's people throughout the entire world. And so they, they waited um, over centuries, centuries of, of oppression, largely, uh, at this time, the current oppressors are the Romans. And so we have the moment when the, the Messiah appears, and yet when he appears, he doesn't show up uh, in a way that, that emphasizes a, a distance between him and us. He doesn't, and right, I mean, if anybody had a right to create an us and them chasm, it's God and humanity. There, there is truly a difference there, and yet when the Messiah shows up, when God in the flesh shows up, he shows up in a very unexpected way and closes the distance between himself and humble folk, even marginalized folk. Instead, he identifies with them. So let's dive in and see how that happens. Um, again, feel free to keep your Bible open. I'll just be going straight through the passage. Um, it'd be great if you followed along. So let's reread those first seven verses. That's where I'll begin. What we're going to find here is that Jesus is the Messiah who comes from humble origins. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So at this moment, Luke sets up a comparison between two kings. We have Caesar Augustus, who's the, the current emperor of Rome. He was one of the most powerful and important Roman emperors of all uh, Roman history. In fact, he was probably the first emperor of his kind. He was responsible for bringing about what they called the Pax Romana, um, or the, the Roman peace, um, which was a, a period in which there were no conflicts, um, either within or without the Roman Empire. As far as Rome was concerned, there was peace. And of course, we, we know that there's a difference between a lack of conflict and true peace. Uh, Caesar Augustus was, was brutal. He maintained the Pax Romana with, with an iron fist. And so we, we, we begin the passage seeing him issuing a decree for a census. Typically, um, this would, would have been a way for an emperor to measure the extent of his reign, to actually take in a count of all his subjects. And so what would come back to him would be some sort of a, a vision of just how much he rules. Um, and oftentimes it would precede taxation. So he issues this decree. And in the process of issuing this giant census, we see this little couple, Mary and Joseph, from a backwater town in Galilee known as Nazareth. And the decree forces them to up and move um, 
and really make about a 70-mile trek on foot. But check out what's next here. So in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So you notice the way that Luke is, is really driving home, emphasizing this theme of the city of David, the house and lineage of David. He's trying to get us to kind of build up to that moment, so we pay a lot of attention when he finally tells us Joseph's destination. The interesting thing is, Luke, at this point in the book, he's already brought up that Joseph is of the house and lineage of of David. He brought it up in chapter 1. So why is it so important that he's going to emphasize it again here in this passage? So the the reason why is because of a, a large group of Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah that all claim he was going to emerge from the line of the great King David. He was going to, in in many ways, resume the throne of David. Um, And not only that, but in the prophet Micah, um, he said that this this great Davidic king is also going to come from David's hometown. And so Luke is, is, is trying to get us to see that the baby in Mary's belly is, in fact, the Messiah, that things are falling into place for the Messiah to be exactly where he needs to be, when he's born, but also see the irony. This, this great, incredible Caesar is issuing a decree likely to just measure how much he rules, and in the process makes it so that the greatest of all kings is born exactly where he needs to be. It is by Augustus's decree that the Messiah ends up in Bethlehem. So unknowingly, he's paving the way for a man who will go on to immeasurably outstrip him in fame and influence across the entire world, that tonight we get together to talk about Jesus being born, and he leaves the Caesars in the dust of ancient history. So it's this powerful opening to this passage that Luke pulls off. So Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem. You know, and it's interesting, too, they, they probably actually expected this. As a, as a Jewish couple growing up, going to synagogue frequently, um, they would have heard about Messiah almost every week. And they would have been very familiar with the expectation that he comes from Bethlehem. So I wonder what that would have been like for them to receive news of the decree. To have already been told, Mary, you are with child, it is Messiah. And then to receive this decree would have been terrifying. Would things have suddenly become all too real? Precisely because it's happening exactly according to plan. So they get up, they make this 70-mile trek, they make it all the way to the outskirts of town, and then something goes wrong. Uh, Mary's labor pains begin. So they rush into town, um, probably straight to some of Joseph's Joseph's relatives. Um, They try inns or guest rooms, and there is no room. Instead, in the rush to just get a soft place for Mary to deliver, um, they end up wherever there's a manger. So... So it would have been a place to store animals. It could have been a stable, but honestly, knowing the region, it was probably a cave. They probably ended up in a cave. And the Messiah, the ultimate king of all kings, is laid into a feeding trough. Something goes wrong, or so it seems. If you were Mary and Joseph, what would you have thought in that moment? Would you have thought that you had failed? If only we could have made better time, right? If only something could have been different, the king of all kings wouldn't have been laid in a dirty feeding trough. 
Or maybe it would have caused them to doubt the words of the angel who told Mary she was going to be pregnant with Messiah. How, if he really is Messiah, how could he be laid in the manger? So the Messiah comes to us from humble origins. Second, the second unexpected thing, the Messiah goes to humble people. So I'm looking at verses 8 through 14 here. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So straight from the manger, we're moved quickly to the outskirts of town to a field right outside Bethlehem where there are shepherds keeping watch over their flock. So in, uh, in first century Judea, shepherds honestly were probably um, looked at somewhat fondly, maybe even nostalgically because of the connection with, with David. Um, the Jewish people viewed them um, kind of sentimentally in some ways. But that didn't change the fact that, it, that they still lived on the margins of society. Because of the nature of their job, they would have often had to handle animals or dead animals, which actually would have made them unclean for um, temple worship. That they, you know, the Jews didn't see that as a sinful thing, but in order to enter the temple, there, there were certain cleanliness laws that had to be maintained. So in touching um, the sheep, the, the shepherds would actually be agreeing to a marginalized existence. So in many ways, they're, they're isolated from their, their community. They're outsiders. If nothing else, they're, they're not wealthy, not influential. And so while these shepherds are watching their sheep, suddenly they're confronted by an angel. Um, so angels are spiritual beings, um, messengers from God. Uh, we're never given a description of what they look like. Um, you know, we often think of wings. I think that's pretty cool. But we're never actually told that they, they do have wings. All we do know is that they're terrifying. That something about this messenger that shows up to the shepherds is threatening, powerful to the point that he has to tell them not to fear, right? There's kind of the I come in peace moment, um, fear not. And yet, at this point in the book of Luke, angels are kind of commonplace. This is actually the third angel that's shown up in the book of Luke to deliver a message. It's not the angel that's the weird part about this moment. It's who the angel has gone to that's weird. The angel has gone to this group of shepherds. The Messiah is announced to the most average people possible, the least influential, the least important. They are forgettable. And yet these, these men, like any other Jew in the first century, would have been waiting and anticipating the day when Messiah would show up to overthrow the Romans, to bring peace and flourishing back to God's people. They would have been eagerly awaiting him, and yet they would have never in their wildest dreams imagined that they would be the first ones to know of his coming. So what does this tell us about God, about Messiah? So when my friends Tommy and Sarah, um, they recently had a son, um, when Sarah had first gotten pregnant, 
uh, I was one of the first ones to, to know. And it was this really um, awesome moment. So I was trying to think of why it moved me so much to be told, and I think because it revealed something about how Tommy and Sarah viewed me, that they, they viewed me as important enough to tell. I was important enough to them to tell early on. I think that's exactly what's happening here with the shepherds, that these men might be forgettable in their culture, and yet these forgotten, marginalized shepherds are important enough to tell. They are important enough to the Lord. So the Messiah comes to humble folk, and in fact, he, he dignifies them by doing so. Like, we aren't seeing a repeat of that Oscars event. Exactly the opposite. When the Messiah arrives, he humanizes the dehumanized. He brought the outsiders in. In, in the words of Mary, she, earlier on the book, in the book, when she first learns that she is going to carry Messiah, she, she sings a poem. Um, in it, she says that the Lord exalts the humble, and now we're seeing it in action. This is an example of God doing just that. And in fact, the, the angel tells the shepherds that it is going to be by the Messiah's poverty that he will be recognized. So everything else in this passage is actually mostly information that we've heard before. The angel gives them a sign that they'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. If I were to tell you to go out and find a baby here in Libertyville who's swaddled, I would not be narrowing it down much at all, right? Most of the babies are going to be swaddled. Instead, the thing that they're going to recognize him by is exactly the, the, the most unexpected part of the Messiah's coming. It's the feeding trough. It's the manger. That they will come to know the Messiah by this poverty, by his humble origins. And so the Messiah identifies with the shepherds. And then it's as though they're inspired by, by this thing. Suddenly, all these angels show up. The word uh, host here is borrowed from the King James Version, but um, it's, it's translated from the Greek word for army. So like an army, shields rattling, angels show up, and all of them are announcing glory to God in the highest. And yet they're this army that announces peace. The Messiah comes to bring peace and flourishing to a broken world. They praise God, they give him glory, and the reason is this wondrous mystery of a humble Messiah. So the Messiah comes from humble origins. He goes to the humble. And then thirdly, the Messiah invites the humble into God's plan. So I'm in verses 15 to 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So I think it's helpful at this moment to imagine this scene from Mary's perspective. So she's encountered angels. She's been told that the child mysteriously growing inside her is, in fact, the long-awaited ultimate Davidic king of the Jews. She's, been, uh, she's gone from being a no-name girl in a backwater town to suddenly being the mother of God incarnate. And then she, she experiences this upheaval 
the decree that comes to her and moves her and her husband 70 miles to, to Bethlehem. And even though it's, a, it's exactly according to prophecy, suddenly she finds herself laying her fragile, delicate newborn in an animal's feeding trough. Maybe she wondered how this humble, even impoverished origin for Jesus could all be according to God's plan. And then suddenly what happens? As she and Joseph are, are there in the stable or, or the cave or whatever it was, suddenly out of nowhere a group of shepherds walk in. Wide-eyed, awestruck at what they're seeing. And it isn't Mary who tells them who's in the manger. It's them who tell Mary. They tell her that they have been visited by a, a powerful spiritual being, an angel that has announced to them that that baby in the manger is the one we have been waiting for all along. And so Mary sees these humble folk come in and recognize Messiah by his humble origin. And, and so it becomes clear that it's all part of the plan. The manger is not a mistake. It isn't a hitch in the plan. The shepherds are not an afterthought. It is all according to this mystery that God is putting together. The Messiah doesn't appear as a king brushing elbows with dignitaries and, and whatever. He, he comes as good news for all people, down to the most forgettable. In fact, it's interesting, going back to what the angels said to the, the shepherds, they say, for unto you is born. What was it? Was the baby born to the shepherds or to Mary and Joseph? The, the angels feel that the Messiah has been born to the shepherds. He's their Messiah. The baby is theirs. And it's the announcement of good news for all people. The Messiah isn't reaching from the top. Instead, he starts at the bottom. In fact, uh, just think about, about this in terms of the shepherds' story. Um, my wife puts this in a really beautiful way, that in this story, the, the Messiah gives the shepherds a voice. They're announced that Jesus has come. It's announced to them that Jesus has come, and then they get up and they do exactly the same things that, thing that the angels did. They become a part of God's plan that's unfolding in this passage, so that they themselves become the bearers of the good news of great joy, which will be for all people, and they speak it to the baby's mom. And in fact, there's another way in which the shepherds do exactly what the angels do. The angels are said to praise God, and immediately they say glory to God in the highest. So there's the words praise and glory used. And then as the shepherds are leaving, what words are used? They leave praising and glorifying God. I don't think this is an unintentional thing that Luke is trying to show us. He's trying to show us that the shepherds were told about Jesus and then invited to become a part of this redemptive plan that he is unfolding in human history. So the Messiah shows up and those humble people are exalted. His presence doesn't diminish those around him. Somehow with him, in his arrival, the, the broken down are able to stand a little taller, to actually play a role in God's unfolding plan in confirming to Mary that this is all God's plan. So the Messiah invites the humble into God's plan. But of course, this moment is really only the beginning. 
Um, you know, I think in some ways it's a shame that we've, we've so isolated the, the Christmas story from the rest of, of Jesus' life. It's easy to forget that Jesus li- lived consistently with this moment for the rest of his days. That his whole ministry on earth was exactly like this. At one point he, he tells somebody later on in the gospel that the Messiah has no place to, to lay his head. He continues to identify with the humble. And, and who does he go to? He continues to go to the humble, to the sick, to the marginalized, to the unclean. He identifies with the broken all the way to the end. In fact, when he finally does take up a crown for himself, it's a crown of thorns. When the Messiah finally is exalted or lifted up, he's lifted up on a Roman execution device reserved for criminals. And when he finally is said to be the king of the Jews, it's through a sign nailed to his cross in order to mock him. To the end, the Messiah remains lowly. And yet, what the Bible tells us is that on that cross, Jesus was accomplishing an act of incredible victory. That it was exactly at that moment on the cross when the expected Messiah was doing something incredibly unexpected, that God was winning, that the cross, too, was according to plan, that by the blood of Jesus, he was absorbing all the punishment for our rebellion against God. And it was finished. Then in his resurrection, Jesus becomes the guarantee that the victory truly has been won, over sin and death. His own bodily resurrection becomes, the biblical writers use the term, the first fruits. Um, it's, it's like the first bit of the harvest that gives us a taste of what's to come. That for those of you who have trusted in the Messiah, who have trusted in Jesus and the wondrous mystery of the manger, even more the wondrous mystery of the cross, for those of you who have trusted in that, Jesus himself is the proof that one day you too live again. He makes us right with God so that all of us who turn to him can, just like the shepherds, participate in his plan in the world. That even now, that work begins. So Jesus is the expected Messiah, but he saves in unexpected ways. I'd like to ask the band to come up at this point. Thanks, guys. You know, as, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking that in many ways we're in a similar position now that the shepherds were in only moments before the angels showed up. That we too are, wait in anticipation for the Messiah to come again. We too are awaiting the appearance of Jesus to finish the work that he started in Bethlehem. So in a moment we're going to light candles uh, while the band plays a song, and then um, once we've got all the candles lit... Uh, we're going to sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I just encourage you, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, um, to see that candle in your hand as a symbol of our hope in him. Not an uncertain hope, but rather hope guaranteed by the risen Christ. But it's still hope, right? It's a looking forward to the moment when once again we are told, that the Messiah has come. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the gift of yourself, um, that you, you poured yourself out for our sake and rose in victory. We look forward to the day, Lord, when you return, um, not in brokenness, but, but taking on the glory that you rightly deserve as God. We love you, Lord. Amen.